and welcome to Under My Roof, an Orthodox Christian podcast in which we explore questions of importance to life in the modern world. I am your host, Father Jacob Siemens, and I am a priest of the Archdiocese of Orthodox Churches of Russian Tradition in Western Europe, based in Paris, an autonomous Archdiocese of the Moscow Patriarchate, under the oversight of Metropolitan Jean of Dubna. I am the rector of St. Theodore and St. Tylo Orthodox Church in Cardiff, Wales, and the Orthodox Christian Chaplain at Cardiff University. It is a joy to discuss matters of faith and theology, and I hope that you will join me in these discussions, both now and in future episodes. But for now, let's drop in on today's episode of Under My Roof. Today we are exploring the name of God. In the book of Exodus, God gives his name to Moses, declaring himself to be the great I Am. This is something with which Jesus directly associates himself in the Gospel of John, and it carries immense implications for all manner of questions concerning God and how we relate to him. In light of this, bear with me as we explore the name of God. The idea I'm about to explore is one that's been on my mind for a long time. When Moses meets God in the burning bush and asks him, Who shall I say sent me? God answers, Tell them. I am sent you. Actually, the precise words God uses are, I am the being. Tell them the being has sent you. Whatever the precise sentence, though, the meaning is the same. God is. And it's this simple phrase that has captivated me ever since I first encountered it, back when I was studying religions as a first-time young undergraduate. It is an idea that might have passed me by, except that there is another biblical passage that echoes God's self-naming. This is when Jesus is challenged by the Jews in the Gospel of John. I'm sure many of you can recall the instance, but I think the passage is worth reciting. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. And you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you claim to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say that he is your God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I said I do not know him, I should be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he was to see my day. He saw it and was glad. The Jews then said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Importantly, the passage concludes by saying that the crowd then picked up stones to throw at him. So, what is the significance of of this idea? Why has it stood out to me for all of this time? Well, to begin with, it's probably one of the most remarkable features of any of the religions of the world. In other religions, the gods are known by a name, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, Zeus, Poseidon, Athena, these are proper names. They're appellations that may describe something, 
some attribute, some power or function. Yet not one of their names carries the same implications as the theophany of the burning bush, and none of these gods reveal their name in the way that the God of Moses does. So let's begin by thinking conceptually. Although I am not exactly a scholar of Hinduism, I am aware of Brahman, the supreme infinite principle. But even if comparisons could be drawn between this and the God who chose the Jews to be his people and then sent his son into the world to make a new people, there would be at least two radical differences. This is because in declaring himself to be I am, our God gives us his name. He reveals himself to us as personal. And at the same time, he tells us that he doesn't exist. No, though he reveals himself to us, the God who calls all things into being and then saves creation when it falls away doesn't exist. He's no supreme principle. He just is. Isness, or pure being, whatever you want to call it, or however you might describe it, the God we believe in as Christians is being beyond being. He is not just a superversion of human traits. He is not just a collection of projected big ideas. He is. And this is something with which Jesus clearly identifies himself in the Gospel of John when challenged by the Jews. In fact, it represents one of the most astonishing features of Jesus' ministry. Indeed, if there was any doubt in our contemporary minds, his listeners knew exactly what he was saying. That's why they picked up rocks to stone him. Now, on a personal note, in light of its breathtaking scope as an idea, that it appeared only to the ancient Hebrews and again in the incarnate Logos, the idea of God as pure being, even while we experience him as personal, is one of the things that supports my own faith. The enormity of it all, the fact that it is unprecedented in any other religion, these things make it all the more evident that it is truly God's self-disclosure and not a merely human construction. But back to its meaning. That God is pure being, that he is the great I am, has cosmic implications and should condition how we understand everything from his love as expressed in the incarnation to how we relate to him in time, to how we envisage the end of time, this is something understood by the fathers of the church, and we can see it in every orthodox doctrine. Let me explain it this way. Think of a blank piece of paper. If you're European, you might think of a piece of A4. If you're American, then it'll be 8.5 by 11. It doesn't matter. Just look at it in landscape orientation. Now, in your mind's eye, Draw an asterisk on the left-hand side of the page. Then, starting from that asterisk, draw a horizontal line from left to right until you're roughly at the same distance from the margin on the right side of the page as your asterisk is from the left margin. Stop drawing your line 
and finish it with another asterisk. You should now have in front of you a mostly blank sheet of paper, save for a single horizontal line that begins and ends in an asterisk. With this image now in your mind, imagine the white space as timelessness. We might say that God occupies that whole space, not because God occupies space at all, of course, but merely to represent the fact that he is everywhere, yet not bound to any particular place, especially in relation to the line you've drawn. So what of that line? The line which begins on the left with an asterisk represents time. How time begins doesn't matter, but let's use the Big Bang as our beginning. From the beginning, time and matter unfold in a linear fashion. We know this because all of nature tells us it's true. Of course, we acknowledge the astrophysical reality that time can be warped and that forces like gravity can affect its passage, but the overwhelming trajectory of time is linear, and indeed, the physical exceptions might be said to prove the rule. And so, on the right-hand side of the line, we come to our second asterisk, which, by now you will have guessed, represents the end of time. We don't know when that will be, or what it will look like exactly, but we do know that it will end, and that the end will herald an encounter with God. With all that drawn on our mental paper, we can see how God, the great I Am, relates to us and us to Him. He stands above, around, and beyond time. As we've heard numerous times already, He is not bound to any timeline. He just is. That's why when Moses asked, Whom shall I say sent me? God did not respond by declaring, Tell them the one who was and is and will be sent you. That is clearly anchored in time. No, he said, Tell them I am sent you. The eternal is, in this case, the eternal present. Think of the way you and I experience the present. For us, it almost doesn't exist. You might think of yourself as watching or listening to this podcast in the present, yet by the time I get to the next word, everything you've already heard is in the past. And everything I will say is in the future. Indeed, there is no real way for us to connect to the present at all. Ever. The present for us is almost always past before we realize it, and everything else is future. The mystical tradition of Orthodox Christianity is really the only way of attaining an authentic experience of the present. As we grow in the life of prayer, we can find timelessness in stillness. It is there that God comes to meet us in His divine energies, and we can know him that way. Just as we can never know the sun above us in a direct sense, because it would simply burn us up with its heat, yet we can know something about it by its light and warmth, that is, the energy it puts out, contemplation allows us to experience something of God, not as he is in his essence, 
but by participation in his energies. And therein is timelessness. But so far, we have not considered the work of Christ, the incarnate Logos. In light of the fact that he is true God, yet condescends to take on our full human nature, including our temporality, that is, our physical bondage to time, how, we might ask, can he reconcile his divine timelessness with material time-boundness? Well, the spiritual answer to this is kenosis, which refers to the self-emptying undertaken by God's word from the moment of his conception in the womb of the Holy Theotokos. But the answer I want you to consider is one that corresponds to the image I asked you to make in your head on the blank sheet of paper, depicting time's relation to eternity. This is because, while the Incarnation is an historical event, that is, it takes place at a specific moment on the timeline, its reality, including all its effects, are eternal. In other words, in the Incarnation itself, eternity is mediated to temporality. That which surrounds the timeline can be comprehended by the timeline, and the characters and the events on the timeline are redeemed. Let's go back then to our white sheet of paper and reflect on our horizontal line. As I said before, it doesn't matter where we conceive of the present in relation to the start or the end of the timeline, because even if we're talking about billions of years of existence, we have no idea where the end will come in relation to the beginning. For convenience sake, then, let's place a cross in the middle of our timeline. Draw it so that it stands up from the line, as if it was looming on the horizon. Now, draw a few stick figures to the left of the cross, and a few to the right. These, in case you haven't guessed already, are our forebears in time, both prior to and after the Incarnation. Next, draw a stick figure to represent you. It should appear to the right of the figures already standing to the right of the cross. Finally, if you want to, add some figures to the right of the one that represents you. Those will be the people of the future. So it's time to consider the fact that eternity surrounds the entire timeline. Wherever you look, from the beginning to the end, and especially to the cross in the middle, standing above all history as it does, eternity is present. In light of this, time is as nothing. Importantly, Abraham is as present to God as you or I, and the cross stands over everything. When, then, people question how it is that the Lord's sacrifice of himself on the cross can be present in every divine liturgy, the answer is that what he undertakes in the Incarnation, an historic event that concluded with his return to the right hand of the Father in heaven, that is, eternity, well, that simply is. When we gather together as a church to stand before that great icon of heaven, the holy altar of God at the time of the divine liturgy, we do so with the assurance that eternity is present with us. And the same goes with the saints and all those who have died in the faith. We are not alone. 
In fact, the holy temples are crowded with souls in the presence of God. Souls we see and souls we do not see. And indeed, if you can imagine the light of eternity shining from all directions, it causes the cross, as a symbol of the Incarnation, to cast its happy shelter over the entire timeline, lest we be consumed by the heat. When our Lord said, No one comes to the Father except through me, this model illustrates the universality of that fact. God is everywhere, and Christ is his mediator. This fundamental truth about God, this breathtaking self-disclosure, can be considered as more than just a cornerstone of theology. For by virtue of God disclosing his name, he also discloses his love. In the ancient Semitic world, to share one's name was to share something of one's identity. Names were not simply thrown around as they are now. Indeed, we might think of name-sharing as something like an embrace. It imparted power to the recipient, as they came away with a handle on the one sharing. Actually, the same holds true today. As soon as another person has our name, they are able to find us, to call on us, even to impose on us. In this way, when God declares to Moses that he, he is I am, that he is simply the being, we might think of this in relation to the incarnation itself. God is, from the earliest moments of our relationship with him, engaged in a kind of kenosis, that self-emptying I talked about a few minutes ago. He first gave us access to himself by sharing his name. Then he gave us a more profound and everlasting access by sharing himself in the Incarnation. So us human beings, us time-bound creatures, are met by the Timeless One. He reaches down to us and gives us a handle by which we can reach out to him. And in doing so, he reveals himself to be everywhere all at once. So even as we go about our lives in the present moment, which is never truly present, but constantly shifting beneath our feet from past to future, he is with us. He is with us as we walk, as we sleep, as we work, and as we love. He is even with us as we sin. As the psalmist says, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If God is everywhere and always, and most importantly, if God himself tells us he is, then there must be no limits to his love for us and what he invites us into. It means that our prayers are always and everywhere being heard. It means that whatever our state, we can reach out to him in the confidence that he is there. Because he simply is. But I will go one further and say that this truth also vindicates St. Gregory Palamas and the approach to prayer he espoused. Because when we enter into stillness and pray with our innermost being, we invite God into ourselves where our being and his intertwine.
and our souls become so illumined by his indwelling that it leads to our transfiguration, to our deification. It equally means that participation in the sacraments is true participation in eternity, and that our communion with the saints is not something abstract and mental, but very real and effective. Time, which we experience as something binding and limiting, is, in fact, at least in some ways, illusory. And, at least when we actively take up God's invitation to participate in him, something we can transcend, if only temporarily, even in this life. Now, having said all that, I also have to say that there is far more to this idea than I can possibly touch on in the course of a time-limited podcast. To try to contain being itself is an impossible feat, even if I had hours or days instead of minutes. But by now I hope you have at least some sense for the magnitude of what God reveals to us about himself, and, equally, how incredible it is that Jesus should have identified himself with this. That God just is, is truly the ground of our faith, and must be the lens through which we seek to understand everything else, from the Incarnation, to the sacraments, to prayer, to life after death. Between the Exodus and the Incarnation, between the burning bush and the life of Jesus Christ, God shows us that he is pure being and that this being who stands beyond the timeline is also lovingly present with us on the timeline. The same being who could remain aloof does precisely the opposite. At the heart of this is the Incarnation, by which means the cross comes to provide shelter to us all, past, present, and future. And for this reason we give thanks. We become part of an icon that continually gives thanks, knowing with certainty that, as we partake of the Eucharist, we truly commune with he who is. We truly transcend the timeline and thereby become part of the eternal. Thank you for listening to Under My Roof. If you enjoyed this program and wish to hear more, you can find past episodes on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, and just about any other platform on which you look for your podcasts. If you wish to support the podcast and other resources for those seeking to go deeper into Orthodox Christianity, you can do so by visiting the Orthodox Exchange website at orthodoxexchange.net. There you will find videos, previous podcasts, writings, and even a shop where you can subscribe to the quarterly Orthodox Exchange magazine. We look forward to hearing from you, as together we seek to explore and share the ancient Christian faith.